This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Camille Bourdas read her story, Coloring Colorado, from the July 10th and 17th, 2023 issue of the magazine. Bourdas published two novels in France. Her first novel in English, How to Behave in a Crowd, came out in 2017. Now here's Camille Bourdas. Color in Colorado. Should they hear this? The day they came for the interview, I woke up too early, thinking about Bernard Loiseau. This happens when I'm nervous, not thinking about Loiseau specifically, but thinking in my sleep, waking up mid-thought. The thought was in fact a memory. I write fiction now mostly, but back in the 90s, I worked for a magazine in New York, one that sent me to France to profile Bernard Loiseau after he earned his third Michelin star. I was picked because I was half French and spoke the language, not because I was good. But I wanted to be good, and writing a profile was a major step for me, so I did a lot of research on Loiseau. I concluded that interviewing him would be easy. The guy was funny, passionate, generous in his answers. The piece would write itself. A piece that wrote itself was dubious to me, though, even as a mostly inexperienced young writer. I needed to introduce conflict, I thought, something abrasive. Get Chef Loiseau off balance. I asked him about food, of course, but then I quickly jumped to questions of ambition, of jealousy and envy. Those were the kinds of things that were on my mind at the time. I was seeing too many people around me sign book deals and make connections while I was stuck cataloging everyone else's successes in hundred words or less reviews for culture pages. That was my story back then, 24 years old and already bitter. I don't remember exactly how I phrased it to Bernard. He'd asked me to call him that. But I remember the sentiment. I remember wanting to get this honest man, this man who'd done nothing but work hard and make it to the top, to talk shit. I wanted to know if he was angry at another chef's success, if there were dishes that others got famous for, which he thought were crap. Do your readers need to know this? Loiseau had answered the way he'd answered all my questions, not taking a split second to think about them. Pardon me? Your readers, should they hear this? Do they want to know this? He didn't mean to shame me, I don't think. His dimples were still showing. I changed the subject. We talked for another hour. I observed dinner service. I watched Loiseau shake hands with every single one of his employees after it ended. I felt inadequate the whole time. Not because I was a journalist in a three-star kitchen, but because I was a journalist who hadn't once asked herself what her readers wanted to know. I'd operated under the assumption that my readers would want to know what I wanted to know. In Loiseau's case, I was probably right. Probably my readers would want to know which chefs he hated, who he thought was a hack. But did I want to write for people who wanted to know this? For people like me? I quit and moved back in with my father back to Chicago. I never wrote the profile. In my father's guest room, I wrote a novel about bitter journalists in Manhattan. It was surprisingly well received. Now, 30-some years later, woken up by a memory of Loiseau asking again, should they hear this? I was at my kitchen table, watching videos of him on YouTube. I kept the volume low so as not to wake my husband. It was still pitch black out. The birds weren't even up. I watched Loiseau talk about success. 
He was on top because being on top was the only thing on his mind. I watched Loiseau peel carrots, cook sole, and mashed potatoes. I watched him being asked what came first, the chicken or the egg, and heard his confident answer. The chicken, of course. La poule, bien sûr. At some point, the trash collectors came. I heard my husband get up, our bedroom door creak, the sounds he made in the morning. No one brushes his teeth for longer than my husband. You think it's over, but then it starts again, more vigorous than before. There's some spitting and heavy throat clearing, too, which I try not to think about. He smokes a lot. I launched another Loiseau video. What's that guy so happy about, my husband asked, when he joined me in the kitchen. He's poaching eggs, I said. This got him interested. Eggs interest him. We watched in silence as Loiseau spoke of egg curvature. When it ended, my husband saw as well as I did which videos YouTube suggested I watch next. They were all talk show clips of my former student, Addie. Addie interviewed about her films. Addie interviewed about success. I felt betrayed by my computer that it would so casually let my husband know how much research I'd been doing on Addie the past few days. Computers know too much about us, of course. I understand that certain people find comfort in that, but it's hard for me not to think of the machines as intently trying to shame us the way they give other people glimpses of our search histories or allow that family vacation photo to slip into our PowerPoint presentations. He looks like Gandolfini a little, my husband said, of Loiseau. He was letting me save face, walking away from my screen to make us coffee. Who is it? It's that chef I interviewed a hundred years ago, Bernard Loiseau. Oh yeah, he said, Bernie the bird. My husband and I met not long after my journalist years, but I almost never spoke of them. I'd mentioned Loiseau only once in 2003 when I heard of his suicide. My husband had instantly translated his name back then too, Bernie the bird. Loiseau being one of perhaps a hundred French words he could recognize. He killed himself, right? He asked now. I confirmed and closed the YouTube tab. I understood as I did so that in a few months, when the documentary about Addie came out, the documentary for which I was about to be interviewed, I would be offered recommendations to watch it or clips from it, perhaps the very clips in which I would be talking about her. He looked like a nice guy, my husband added, Bernie the bird. He must not have thought so, I said. Colorine, Colorado. I met Addie the year my fourth book came out, a collection of stories. I was teaching by then, I still am, and she was an undergraduate student taking fiction writing for the first time. The roster said Adriana, but she insisted we call her Addie. It had long stopped surprising me how intent Americans were on having everyone they met use their diminutives, how intent on projecting friendliness right away. I'd come around to the Sams, the Dans, and the Steves, but it felt a shame to shorten Adriana, and so for a while I didn't. Addie corrected me every time. After the first day of class, she stuck around to make sure she'd understood how little would be expected of her. Really, she asked, all she had to do was write two short stories for the whole semester? I told her that two stories were a lot, that some stories had taken me years to write, and for a second, Addie made a face like something smelled bad, like I'd opened a Pyrex of egg salad. I don't mean I spent years working nonstop on one story, I explained, already defending myself, already modifying the wisdom I just tried to impart. Writing took time, writing was serious. I'm always working on several things at once. What about novels, Addie asked. How long does it take you to write a novel, on average? 
I said there was no average. I'd written my first novel in eight months, my second in six years, my third in three years. There's always an average, Addie said. The average of the numbers you just gave me is about 38 and a half months. That's the average time it takes you to write a novel. I was silent for a moment. I guess I was trying to do the math she'd just done, adding all the months I'd suffered through, then dividing them neatly. It's a long time, she noted. She herself had written nine novels in high school. By the following week, Addie had read everything I'd ever published. She stayed to talk to me about it after class. She tried not to be insulting, but she was 20 years old. She was still looking for meaning everywhere and hadn't found any in my writing. It was all about normal people to whom life happened, she said. I said I was sorry my books hadn't touched her, and I meant it. I was always sorry when people felt they'd wasted time reading me. You said in class that fiction was a stream of causes and consequences, Addie said. But your stories, they're always just about people talking and thinking. I had indeed just told my class about causes and consequences, repeated the diet cause, consequence, cause, consequence too many times, clapping my hands every time I said cause and every time I said consequence, while one student took furious notes as if he thought I'd been listing the exact number of causes and consequences a good piece of fiction should contain. Thoughts and language have consequences too, I told Addie. Maybe, she conceded. But in your stories, the consequences of language and thoughts are always just more language and more thoughts. Addie, I would later learn, wrote crime novels. She wrote about rape, dismembered women, violence leading to revenge, leading to epiphany, leading to closure. I guess I didn't understand why they were stories, she added, referring to mine. What she was saying, albeit politely, was, why did you bother? Should they hear this? They're well written, she went on, but it's like there's no beginning or end, really, only middle. At some point, it just ends like, colorín colorado. Like what? Colorín colorado. It's something we say in Mexico at the end of children's stories. Colorín colorado, este cuento se ha acabado. It's kind of our version of, and they lived happily ever after, except it doesn't mean anything at all, so it's confusing. Because the word combination coloring Colorado carried no meaning and had been chosen only because it rhymed with acabado, Addie had grown up thinking that she was missing the point of every story. I'm sure you understood the stories fine, I said. I didn't know if I was talking about my stories or those from her childhood. I was always dumb and exhausted after teaching. I wanted to go home, watch a movie with my husband. What makes you decide when a story is done, Addie asked. She wasn't tired. When do you decide the message has been conveyed? I object to the word message, I said. Messages were for ads and propaganda, I didn't say. Messages were for politicians, for Hollywood, for babies, for selling something to someone you considered a little or a lot less intelligent than you. Art is not here to give lessons. What is it here for, Addie asked. I remember avoiding eye contact looking down at my satchel, wishing I had more things to pack back into it. That peculiar mix of feelings, shame and superiority in equal measure. I knew what art was for. I just didn't think it was the kind of thing you said out loud. Art is, I stopped right away. I could feel my face redden, the shame overcoming the superiority. I was fine with people not understanding art or what it was for. I had friends like that. It was the people who didn't and wanted to that worried me. 
I felt they were trying to trick me, to expose the charade of my life. Because maybe I didn't know what art was for, after all. Maybe Addie knew, and she was about to humiliate me with the answer. Maybe my conviction existed only when left alone in the dark and disappeared the second someone asked for it to come out. It's okay to write plot, I ended up saying. This class is about asserting your own taste, recognizing what you like and why you like it. But what about your taste, Addie said. Is that what happened to you? You didn't like plot and so you just decided to forget about it? I love plot, I said. I'm just incapable of conceiving of one. When's the last time you tried, Addie asked, but she didn't wait for my answer. You should try again. She wanted to make a deal. She would write a story in which people just talked if I wrote one in which something happened. That's not how this class works, I said. I know, this would be between us. She thought it was too sad that I had given up on plot. She thought that there was a chance I'd be good at it now for some reason. We change all the time, she said. She needed to believe this a little longer. I surprised us both, I think, when I said I'd give it a shot. I would write a plot-heavy story and share it with her. I heard myself thank her, too, the way I sometimes thank people who bumped into me on the train. Thank you, Adriana, I said. She said it was Addie. The aliens in Skokie. The camera crew arrived at 10 a.m. sharp. The men were immediately at ease in my apartment, took control of the living room with the confidence of movers on moving day. They had a job to do, a frame to set up. I was the one with no business here. I made coffee, I made tea, but no one went near it. Around 10.30, the director sat me on the couch and asked for my story. My story with Addie, I said. No, just your story for now, just a warm up. Two cameras were pointed at me, but I don't think they were rolling yet. I, I don't know where to start, I said. Um, my father was from here, from Chicago. My mother was French. That's amazing, the director said. It was a stretch, but I told him I actually used to do what he did, interview people. I said, I used to write profiles for a magazine. Who's the most famous person you ever interviewed, he asked. We just did Jennifer Lopez last week. Very nice woman, very down to earth. Well, no one near that, I said. I couldn't say Bernard Loiseau now that the name Jennifer Lopez had been produced. You could tell she was genuinely sad about Addie, the director went on, even off camera. I should have said earlier that Addie died last summer. I'm bad at this. I should have led with that. Addie died on set while filming the last part of the trilogy that had made her famous. Although that's not correct. It wasn't the movies that made her famous, but the videos she'd posted in the years before. Short, extremely low-budget adaptations of the crime stories she wrote, in which she played all the roles. Victims, witnesses, cops, lawyers, and perpetrators. Addie had gained a cult following while still in college, and worldwide attention not long after she graduated, when one of her films was shared by a then-influential, not-disgraced comedian. He'd meant to make fun of Addie for the bad lighting, the terrible sound effects, but the internet had shamed him for shaming a young woman, an unknown artist, and deemed Addie's work fearless and radical. Studio interest had followed naturally after the buzz, a streaming platform contract after that. Cinephiles and critics, unsure what to do with Addie's work, had deemed the person herself a fad, but now her premature death at the age of 34 was turning her into an icon of sorts, 
her art, it was now art, into something that would last and define our time, in retrospect. I suspected Addie would get a reel, not a still, and the Oscars in memoriam segment next month. Let's put you in the armchair, actually, the director said to me. I love the almond green. It will be nice with your gray hair. He made a phone call while the crew rearranged the shot. They were down before him, and one of the cameramen said he was going downstairs for a cigarette. I told him it was cold out and he could just go into my husband's office. I regretted it immediately. My husband wouldn't want anyone left alone in his office. I would have to keep the cameraman company while he smoked, which he would take for what it was, a sign that I didn't trust him. Unless I smoked with him, I thought, as we walked together to my husband's office. Then he would think we were bonding. I hadn't smoked in years. This is nice, he said, lighting his cigarette by the window. I haven't smoked indoors since college. I took a cigarette from an open pack on my husband's desk. Perhaps I could just hold it for a minute, I thought, pretend that I wanted to smoke and then pretend to change my mind, keep the charade up long enough that Jay, his name was Jay, or maybe just the initial Jay, come to think of it, would question my motives for keeping him company. It must be pretty depressing to come film me after Jennifer Lopez, I said. I'm not sure Jay heard me. He was staring at my husband's shelves, at all the books. He asked if I was a teacher. I'm mostly a writer, I said, though I'm not sure what I meant by mostly. I spent more time teaching than writing. I made more money teaching than writing. What kinds of books do you write? Um, just old school novels, I said, about made up, normal people. I love it, Jay said. Nobody's are the best kind of people. He pulled a book from my husband's shelves, but put it back immediately, as if he'd mistaken it for another. His affect was exactly that. You start waving at someone you think you recognize on the street, but it's not her at all. He asked me how novelists went about making people up. Do you take a lot of meetings with nobodies to soak in their randomness? I don't know why he insisted on saying nobodies. I'd said normal people. He told me he'd met an interesting nobody the night before. Older lady at the bar, he said. I wasn't flirting. The older lady had played a song Jay liked on the jukebox, and they'd started talking, finding that they had a lot in common. They'd both just been to Mexico. They both loved musicals. Then out of nowhere, Jay said, she tells me she was abducted by aliens a few years back. It was the first time he had really talked to someone like this, Jay said, someone whom most other people would have deemed insane, but because they'd just been bonding over normal things, he'd engaged with the alien abduction story and surprised himself, not believing it exactly, but being interested in meeting the woman within the memory she was sharing. He didn't want to make fun of her, even in his head. He truly wanted to know where the abduction had happened, Skokie, what the woman had seen, Shadows, five-knuckled alien fingers. How long it had lasted. Only a minute or two before the aliens had thrown her off the ship. She'd broken a hand in the fall. The abduction had happened shortly after Michael Jackson's funeral in Los Angeles, the woman had explained. An event she'd considered attending, but had ultimately decided would be too much for her emotionally. She'd watched the service at home on TV, alone. She'd cried all day. And then the aliens came for her, Jay said. You can't make that shit up. 
Obviously, someone can, I said. I mean, yes, someone can, but you can't make her up, is what I'm saying. The emotional older lady who cries for Michael Jackson and gets abducted by aliens. There's no connection there. It would be too much in a book. No one would believe it was the same person. He ashed in the metal ashtray my husband and I had brought back from France the last time we went. i just quit smoking back then. The smell had started bothering me. We'd thought that the hinged cover on the ashtray would keep the problem contained. Novels always want to simplify, Jay went on. Here's another example. Because of novels, we pretend to agree people think in whole sentences. She thought, I thought, and then a perfectly shaped observation. But like, if I'm on a date and I say something stupid, I just want to disappear, right? I don't actually think the words, I want to disappear. You remind me of Addie, I said. How so? It's something she could have said. Everything is something anyone could have said, Jay said. That's my point. I missed my husband in that moment. And Jay was right. I didn't think the words, I miss my husband, but a series of exterior stimuli. What Jay was saying, the flat winter light turning the white bookshelves gray, the hum of the fan that expelled the cigarette smoke out onto the street, transited through my brain and bounced around in my body as emotions, shortcuts to old memories. Landing back on Earth, Jay had said, the lady had broken her hand. The only bone I'd ever broken was in my left hand years ago, in arguably opposite circumstances. My husband and I had gone to bed holding hands. We were still a young couple, and he'd squeezed mine too hard in his sleep. Even through the pain, I thought it was a great story. He held my hand so hard it broke, but my husband had made me promise not to tell anyone. People would think he was secretly violent, he'd said, and I, a brainwashed wife, making excuses for him. Recently, though, over dinner, he told the story to an old friend of ours, and I'd realized it had been more than 20 years. Bernard Loiseau was still poaching eggs then, and I hadn't yet met Addie. Now they were both dead, and I couldn't remember the last time I'd gone to sleep holding my husband's hand. He was likely taking his break now, smoking outside with his grad students. Picturing him made me want the cigarette I was holding. You know, Jay said, I'm a teacher too. I assumed he gave classes on technical film stuff, lenses, focal length. But when I asked where he taught, he looked far into the distance and said, everywhere. And I understood he was high as a kite. Touching the ceiling. The week after we made our pact, Addie came to me after class, having written not one but three stories in which nothing happened. She asked for my action-packed one. I thought I had the whole semester, I said. She gave me a two-week extension. Her stories were all about her grandmother. In one, her grandmother showed Addie how to make flan. In another, they went to McDonald's after a doctor's appointment. In the third, they made 20 piñatas in their garage, fulfilling a last-minute order from richer neighbors. The stories weren't great, but I thought that if Addie got rid of 90% of the metaphors, the grandmother's papery skin, the bleeding sunset, if she took a hard look at the flan was shivering on the plate and cut the dialogue in half, she could be left with something worth starting from. The piñata story was the most promising. It was actually so focused on one thing, the making of the piñatas, that I became jealous. For all that I praised concision, I sometimes had trouble keeping my stories contained. There were no metaphors or useless descriptions in the piñata story. 
The balloons Addie and her grandmother inflated to form piñata base shapes were just that, balloons. Once full of air, they rose up to touch the ceiling. Not to brush it, not to kiss it. And when time came to work on a new piñata, Addie and her grandmother simply pulled on a string to bring a balloon to their level, pasted layers of newspaper on its surface with a mixture of flour and water, repeating the process balloon after balloon while the previously lathered ones dried. The story went nowhere, but it did so at a fascinating pace. When the shells had hardened and holes for pouring candy were cut out, the balloons inside the piñatas popped with the intensity of gunshots, an image that jumped to the reader's mind, not one that Addie used. The story also gave you instructions on how to make something, and so no matter what you thought of it, you hadn't wasted your time reading it. You'd learned the steps to making a piñata, and that was more than what most writing gave you. When I next saw Addie, I told her to keep doing that, to see where it led, to perhaps apply the same focus to the flan story if she wanted to make this a larger project, a series of shorts in which she made different things with her grandmother, but she stopped me. I'll never write about myself again, she said. It's too hard to hear what people think of your life. I don't know how you do it. I told her I didn't. My stories weren't autobiographical. You know what I mean, she said. People think they are, because they could be. I said that writing was supposed to be hard and that she should keep digging at the piñata story. There was something there. She could add fictional elements if she wanted, murders even, if it felt comfortable. You keep them, she said, when I handed back her pages with my notes. I never want to think about these stories again. She might have said, do whatever you want with them, I'm not sure. Not that it would change much. Not that I'm looking for excuses. A year or so later... Eddie had graduated by then. I used about 700 words of the piñata story in my novel Six Corners. I put them pretty much verbatim in the mouth of one of my characters as a childhood memory. It was supposed to be a placeholder, something to help me move forward before going back to tweak later. You know the plagiarist story. I was convinced that the stolen part would leap out at me when time came to revise, but it flowed and it stayed. I almost cut it at the last minute, not because I had stolen it, but because I worried I'd get in trouble for using a cliché of Mexican life for a Mexican character. I told myself that was my crime, not the plagiarism, but bringing piñatas into it. Why not have the character wear a sombrero while I was at it, sing, ay, 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 canta y no llores? I asked my husband if he thought it was a problem to have a Mexican-American character making piñatas in Pilsen with his grandmother as a child, and he said it depended on the writing. He didn't see anything in the writing that was wrong, he said, or condescending, or essentializing, or exoticizing. It was just a strong scene. I didn't mention that I hadn't written it. I didn't get in trouble. The novel sold well, but not well enough for any kind of controversy. As for the plagiarism, no one but Addie could have noticed, and I doubt she had time for contemporary fiction. She did send a message of congratulations when the book came out, though, teasing that in the time it had taken me to produce 250 pages, she'd made and posted 13 short films on YouTube, become an internet celebrity, and signed a Hollywood deal. She concluded her email the way she'd concluded all emails since graduation. You still owe me a story. The Real World I tried to hold up my end of the bargain back then, to give Addie a story in which things happened. 
I tried writing about a missing child, about blackmail. I even tried a second World War story. Every week after class, she asked me what I had, and every week I gave her a list of aborted ideas. When the semester ended, I said, you win, but Addie said it hadn't been a contest. She made me promise that I would keep trying for plot. She gave me her personal email address. I don't think I meant to use it or to send her a story, but maybe I did. In any case, I didn't try again until Six Corners came out. I must have thought at that point that finally sending Addie a story would absolve me, or at the very least, if Addie ended up suing me for the words that stolen, offer plausible deniability. If she accused me of anything, I could pretend that I thought we had an understanding, that the stories she'd given me in class were mine to use, and the one I'd sent her, hers. In order for this line of defense to work, however, there needed to be a story by me in Addie's inbox. I got to work. A week or so later, I received a call from another former student, John. He wanted to apologize for the way he'd behaved in class years earlier. Are you doing the 12 steps thing, I said. I was joking, but John confirmed. I was an idiot in college, he said. I wasn't living in the real world. The way I remembered it, John had once said in class that I shouldn't be teaching writing because I'd never had a best-selling book. I humiliated you, he was now saying to me on the phone. He hadn't. You have nothing to apologize for, I said, but John had a script to go through. He explained that he'd been sober for a year. He went through the list of all the substances he'd ingested since high school, matching different drugs to different behaviors. Alcohol had made him mean to women, cocaine violent toward friends. I don't want to sugarcoat how much of a dick I was, he said. I never hit a woman, but I punched through walls next to them. I enjoyed scaring them. In an attempt to care about what he was saying, I tried to remember what John looked like. He had sharp incisors, I believed, a weird bump on his neck, big as a quail egg. Tattoos spilling out from his t-shirt, a howling wolf, a bird. I found God, he went on, and I heard him unzip something, his hoodie, perhaps, as if God had been under there all along. I tried to kill myself, and he saved me. Instead of reaching out to make amends to those he'd hurt, John could simply have appreciated his luck at that point, but the option didn't sit well with him. That's not how the real world works, he said. It was the second time he'd used that phrase, the real world. He meant the movies, of course. That's not how it worked in the movies. But the real world? As far as I could tell, John had experienced a pretty basic version of it. He'd expected consequences for his actions, like in books, like in movies, and nothing had happened. People had got over what he'd done or plain forgotten about it. That was how the real world worked. Not everything you did mattered. Not every conversation was remembered by the rest of the cast. Most bad deeds went unpunished. You got away with a lot. But John had wanted to be wronged back, to be asked to explain himself in a long monologue. Hunting down those he'd wronged, or those he thought he'd wronged, was his last-ditch attempt to not be alone with his shame and regrets, to make it all mean something. No one was asking him for an apology? The steps now gave him an excuse to force one on us, to force us to listen to him again. He was still a bully. I forgave him for his in-class comment, and he asked if I had Addie's number. He wanted to apologize to her for something, too. I told him I didn't have it and hung up. 
It was one thing to feel used in someone else's redemption montage, but had John called me only to get Addie's contact? A conversation like this would usually have ruined my focus for the day, but I was too angry not to try to use the anger. I went back to work on the story I planned to send Addie as retroactive payment. The story exaggerated the reasons I'd left France at age 12. My mother's death, she'd been in a car crash with a man she shouldn't have been in a car with. The shame it brought to her parents, the family feud over who got what. In the story, I made my mother's family even richer than it had been, and my and my father's departure from Europe after they caught us off, a steeper demotion. Not that it hadn't been steep. I planned to end the story right there, my exile in America with poor dad, but I wanted to see what happened if I deviated from real events, if I wrote a version of me who took action, who sought revenge against her mother's family. I had my protagonist grow up to be tough, excel at boxing, study law at Harvard, defend high-profile criminals. After many years, instead of going back to France to interview Bernard Loiseau, she went at a wealthy client's request to help him mount his defense in a murder case. I had her hesitate at first. She decided long ago to never set foot in France again, then to do the professional thing, I have a job to do. I had her thinking she'd be in and out, but got the plot to catch up to her, her family's past emerging in the client's files, her mother perhaps still alive, having been forced to fake her own death after getting in with a wrong crowd. I didn't shy away from cliché. The story became a novel, to this day, my best-selling work. I never sent it to Addie. Rock bottom. Last time I saw her, the last time I would see her, was when I attended a literary festival in New York. Addie lived there and showed up for my talk on Stanley Elkin. The organizers had given me carte blanche, an hour on the author of my choice, but I could tell that Elkin had disappointed them. It wasn't a name that would draw crowds. On the same stage, panelists before me had talked about motherhood, about writing from the body, about identity. It had gone well. When I talked to the same audience about the supreme quality of Elkin's verb choices and sentence shape variations, the emotion that arose from his acts and decelerations, many people left the room. Afterward, Addie came up to tell me how much she'd liked my talk. She'd always enjoyed hearing me break apart paragraphs, she said, to see how much I cared about words. She said it like it was a quirk, like I belonged in a museum for knowing grammar and sticking with it. And perhaps she was right. Perhaps grammar was passé. It seemed more and more writers, including writers whose style critics praised, were treating its rule as ballpark suggestions. Browsing through one of the books by the author who had been on stage before me, I'd read the following sentence, quote, From the outside, our love is an impregnable fortress, only we know the truth. Peace on the surface, the illusion of calm waters. Below it, we fight about a misplaced dish, unquote. Addie and I went for a walk and talked about precision in language, correct syntax. Addie tried to humor me, to make fun of what I kept calling lazy writing by offering a silly defense of it. Wanting verb to agree with subject is so reactionary, she said. There is no subject anymore. Everything is fluid. She was laughing, but I wondered whether she had a point. Maybe it wasn't lazy writing after all. Maybe there was intention behind it. Isn't grammar just like a corset, Addie went on. Didn't we all agree to get rid of those? Who wants to see tits pushed up to shoulder level anymore? She pushed up her own breasts as she said this. 
Who wants to read tight sentences? It had rained and the streets smelled clean. Addie had just finished shooting her second film and she seemed happy, happier than I'd ever seen her. Who wants form over content, she said. Don't we all want freedom? Isn't this the 21st century? Who wants thoughts expressed clearly? Who wants clarity? Who wants thoughts? We lived in the century of feelings, blurry emotions, blobs of interiority spilling out. Everyone was unique and infinite. Everyone it wanted to be understood, and no one had time to shape and carefully carve out explanations. It was a fast-moving train being alive, knowing people, Addie said. You hopped on and grabbed onto what you could. I couldn't tell whether she was still disparaging the aesthetic she described or agreeing with it now. I hadn't seen her first movie. I didn't know how her writing had evolved, what she stood for these days. Remember John, she asked me. Addie had seen him recently, and she told me that his sobriety hadn't lasted. Since our phone call a few years earlier, he'd relapsed and recovered, relapsed and recovered. John keeps hitting pause on his life, hoping that it'll give people time to really look at and understand him, Addie said. Meanwhile, the train is moving without him. Isn't that sad? He wants to be understood. Did he think the rest of us were? Maybe if John's syntax were perfect, people would understand him better, I said. That is such an elitist thing to say, Addie said. We stopped at a mini-mart for gum. Addie liked to chew gum while she smoked. She said all the face movement was conducive to new thoughts. The place sold piñatas shaped like cartoon characters, and for a moment I thought that Addie was onto me, that she'd planned this and was going to confront me about stealing lines from her. The problem, of course, is that you can never understand anyone else, she said, looking up at the piñatas. And you can't tell people how to see you either. That's not how it works. Our brains can only hold about a hundred different people. Did you know that? After a hundred, it starts typifying. You're the fifth Canadian I meet, you'll be packed with Canadians. The third guy I know to go through a 12-step program, let me show you to your quarters. There's no room that I can build to John's exact specifications up there. Addie tapped at her forehead. The human brain refuses to know anyone deeply. It's like it knows it's a bad idea. She'd been staring at a SpongeBob-shaped piñata since we'd come in. How do you get them down, she said. I can't see any strings. I told her they were piñatas, not balloons. They weren't floating. They're hooked to the ceiling, I said. Right, Addie said. I couldn't tell what she was on. I'd never been interested in knowing that kind of thing, not even with my mother. My mother, I couldn't put my eyes in my pocket when she came home trembling and delirious, but nothing said I had to stare at her either. How do you say rock bottom in French, Addie asked me. Touché le fond, I said. She said it was the same in Spanish, that French and Spanish speakers merely touched bottom, didn't hit it. She was still talking about John, how many times he'd used the phrase with her, a cliché he'd at least spared me. It's so American, Addie said, this idea of momentum. Even when Americans are collapsing, they do it at great speed. And he tried to kill himself, she added, about John from under SpongeBob's cardboard feet. What a moron. Who does he think he is? Suicide should only be for geniuses and the terminally ill, don't you think? Who was being elitist now? I think it should be for everybody, I said. The option, I mean. 
The cashier asked us if we wanted a piñata today. I guess Addie and I had been looking at the ceiling an unusual amount. Not today, I said, and the man seemed to understand reasons behind my refusal that I hadn't hinted at. I'll take one, Addie said. We walked out with the SpongeBob piñata. We walked for miles all the way to Brooklyn. Every time Addie lit a new cigarette, I offered to carry the piñata, but she kept refusing. We talked about some famous actors she'd met, how tall or short they really were. We talked about art and where to live. There were so many options, Addie said. She was in New York because she'd grown up hearing that's where the artists were, but artists lived everywhere now. In New York, you found only the ones who complained that the city wasn't what it used to be. They were already complaining about that in my day, I said. It's a trick to discourage newcomers. At a crosswalk in Dumbo, Addie noted three things. One, night had fallen. Two, artists who moved to New York used the demands of the city as an excuse to stop making art. Three, she didn't know what to make of her piñata. I don't know why I bought this, she said. She thought perhaps we could fill it and find a kit whose birthday it was. We encountered a party store a few blocks later, solidifying her plan. We bought miniature versions of all the candy bars in existence. We bought M&Ms, confetti, and small plush toys. At the checkout, the cashier wanted to charge us for the piñata itself, but Addie said we'd bought it in Chelsea. Why would you buy a piñata in Chelsea and the filling in Brooklyn Heights? It was hard not to hear judgment in his voice, yet the question seemed valid. We hadn't found anything special in Chelsea. His store carried the same piñata. It takes time for a plot to come into focus, Addie said. The cashier didn't ask any more questions. We filled the piñata on the sidewalk, giving some of the treats away to amused passerby. Two teenage girls recognized Addie and asked for an autograph. It was all good fun until something about the candy hole started bothering Addie. She brought the piñata under the streetlight's weak orange beam and stared into it. It's just a fucking cardboard box, she said. Someone just pasted crepe paper on a cardboard box. As opposed to what, I said. They didn't even use a balloon. She sat SpongeBob on a stoop and explained to me how piñatas were made, the importance of the balloon, the balloon as scaffolding for the paper mache shell. Once the shell was dry, she said, you burst the balloon underneath. It had fulfilled its role. I didn't know whether to pretend I was hearing this for the first time, remind her of her story, or say that I had myself written about the process two novels ago. Addie said that when she was a kid, her grandmother had always let her burst the balloon, but that they'd consistently disagreed on what to do with it afterward. The grandmother wanted to take the limp thing out. Addie wanted it to stay in, for children to find on the ground later among the candy when the piñata broke. She thought it was the real prize, that leftover knotted piece of rubber, the piñata's origin story, trapped within it until the whole thing was destroyed. It all started and ended with that primordial knot. Everyone is cutting corners now, she said. What kind of origin story is a cardboard box? She sat on the stoop next to the SpongeBob piñata. She hadn't included anything about the knot in her story back then. It wouldn't have been as interesting if she had. The symbolism too on the nose. Do you remember the story you gave me once, I said, about piñatas? I never wrote about piñatas, Addie said. Must have been another of your Mexican students. 
It was part of our pact, I said. It was a really good story. She couldn't have been less interested. She took her face in her hands, and I worried that she was going to cry. After a minute, though, I worried that she'd fallen asleep. Her breathing had slowed. The air coming in and out of her kept getting caught on the same patch of mucus in her throat, and I thought of amber, of trapped insects. We still had bags of candy in our hands. You're bleeding, I said, and that got Addie out of her state. A red line trickled from her nose between her ring and pinky fingers. She wiped the blood on her shirt. I wanted to call her a cab, but she said we were only a few blocks from her house and asked me to walk with her the rest of the way. Addie's place was devoid of books and full of lamps. Arc lamps, tree lamps, piano lamps, Tiffany's, low-hanging fixtures. Many were on already. Shadows moved in confusing ways, but visibility was high. She switched on a couple of new lights when we walked in, according to principles that remained unclear to me. She poured us bourbon and disappeared upstairs to change shirts. After 20 minutes, I went to check on her. She'd fallen asleep in the bathroom. I washed her face with a towel and warm water, which half woke her. She nodded when I asked if she wanted me to put her to bed. I didn't know it would be the last time I saw her. She didn't ask me to stay by her bedside. In fact, after I found her in the bathroom, she didn't say another word. But I sat there anyway, until she started snoring evenly. On my way out, I turned off only the lamps I remembered her turning on. She'd left the piñata in the foyer, next to our shoes, and I considered getting rid of it, let her wander in the morning if she'd dreamed the whole thing. I'd encourage her to leave it on the stoop earlier or to give it to the next family that walked by, but she'd insisted on taking it home. We couldn't give a cardboard box to a kid, she'd said. This wasn't a real piñata. It wasn't real. Eggs in a basket, eggs in a hole. None of this did I tell the cameras in my living room from the almond green chair. I talked about Addie's work, how playing every role herself in her first movies had been the opposite of egomania. I made up something about the human struggle for coherence, how we'd all once had the experience of not quite recognizing ourselves, how Addie's early work had taken that idea to an extreme. I said things anyone else could have said about her. When the crew left, I felt empty, the way I did after teaching. Whatever I'd been afraid of hadn't happened. No one had confronted me, no one had asked me point blank if I'd ever stolen Addie's writing. I tried to convince myself that the emptiness I felt was relief, and the relief lightheartedness. I whistled as I did the dishes. I checked the time and the weather. Two hours until my husband came home, 32 degrees. If I walked to campus, I could catch him after office hours, ride the L home with him. I took Grand all the way downtown. For a few blocks, the wind carried a smell of chocolate from the Blommer factory. I was glad not to have lit that cigarette with the cameraman earlier. If I ever smoked again, it would have to be with my husband, I thought, when he made me a cocktail or when a book of his or mine came out. He was working on a book right now about synoptic compositions in art, Synoptic compositions had always interested him. In fact, he told me about them on our first date. They combined different timelines in a single image, telling a story or a myth in such a way that the eye could catch all of its main beats simultaneously. A battle being planned, fought, and won all at once. A man dying in his funeral. 
I often felt like my husband's fascination with the synoptic said something about the way he perceived time. It did often feel like he knew something I didn't about the future. For example, he'd started saying only weeks into our marriage that marrying me was the best decision he'd ever made. He'd repeated it many times since. I always pretended to be flattered, but the truth was it made me uneasy that he could be so sure I wouldn't one day hurt him beyond repair or be the source of his biggest disappointment. He liked his life and was confident that the future stood still, waiting to give him more of the same, whereas I either moved headfirst and in terror toward what came next, or showed it my back, eyes on the past, like the angel of history, being pushed into the future by the storm of accumulated catastrophe. How different could my husband's view of time be that he knew how to judge his decision to marry me before I died, or he died, or something ended? How could I ask him such a question without alarming him? I made it to school and ran into Eric, my husband's favorite PhD student, in the lobby. I hear they came to film you this morning, he said. How does it feel to be a movie star? I wondered why anyone said things like that. Maybe I made him nervous. Even though he studied art history, Eric had once asked my opinions of a novel he was writing, and I hadn't been as encouraging as he'd hoped. His novel had been about the characters and famous works at the Art Institute coming alive at night. Hopper's barflies waxing lyrical at the gift shop, Grant Wood's stern farmer wandering the hallways with his pitchfork while his daughter experienced profound transformation studying Van Gogh's The Bedroom. The book was full of useless details about famous painters. I'd told Eric that the adage, write what you know, didn't mean that one had to write everything he knew about what he knew. We hadn't really spoken since. In the lobby now, I told Eric how exhausting it all was, how no one should ever have to be on camera. Did it feel intrusive, he asked? Did they ask you weird questions? I wonder why they came to interview me at all. I knew Addie had thanked me in a speech years ago, when she won her first award. But apart from that, there wasn't much out in the public to connect us. I told Eric they'd interviewed Jennifer Lopez. Why would they come for me? Why interview the college professor, I said. In these situations, you go for the first grade teacher, the drama teacher from high school. Those are the important ones. No college professor ever made an impact on anyone's life. I was standing precisely where I'd been when I learned of Addie's death facing the glass doors to the street, bulletin board and elevators to my right. I'd been on my way out for fresh air during a class break when I found out. That is nonsense, Eric said. Your husband, for one, has had a tremendous impact on my life. Grad school is different, I said. I wasn't sure why I was going with this. I usually tried to think before I spoke, but that guardrail was gone now. College professors, though, we come in either too early or too late. The bulletin board was advertising the film club's feature of the month, and the poster of E.T. got me wondering why it was that we could only imagine aliens with long fingers like those of that poor woman who'd been abducted by them in Skokie. Perhaps my husband would know. I became certain that he would be in the next elevator to open on my right. I could almost see him there, the way I could almost see that moment in the past when I learned that Addie was dead. I had wanted to cancel the rest of class that day, but to do what? I'd gone back in, thinking I wouldn't be able to talk to my students about pacing and tension and imagery, but I had. I had been able to. 
I'd been able for an hour to forget that Addie had just died, the same way I'd been able for countless days and months before that to forget she was alive, running errands, saying things, looking at herself in mirrors. It's a cliché to have characters forget that their mother has died, to have them try to give her a call years after the fact, but in my experience, it's much more common to forget that someone we know, or used to know, is alive and breathing somewhere. One of the elevators was coming down from the fourth floor. In a few seconds, its doors would open on my husband. I knew that now. He'd be surprised to see me, but not alarmed. He'd know nothing had gone wrong with the interview, wouldn't even have thought to worry that anything could. I would never tell him about stealing from Addie. In that way, it was already possible to say that stealing from Addie was the worst decision I'd ever made. The elevator dinged, a sound similar to that of our old cooking timer, the one my father had used every morning of his life when soft-boiling eggs. Four minutes. It was one of two egg dishes, if you could call a soft-boiled egg a dish, my father had taught me to make, along with eggs in a basket, which my husband called eggs in a hole. With a cookie cutter or a small drinking glass, you made a hole in the middle of a slice of bread. You heated a tablespoon of butter in a pan. Once it melted, you added a few drops of olive oil, my father's secret. You fried the slice of bread in the butter oil mixture for a minute before breaking an egg over the hole. You added a pinch of salt and let the egg set a minute or so. You flipped the whole thing, cooked for 20 more seconds. You served immediately. That was Camille Bordas reading her story, Coloring Colorado. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2017. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, George Saunders discusses So Late in the Day by Claire Keegan. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.